Close your eyes and focus on the first image you see when you hear the word slum. What does it look like? Is it urban or rural? Crowded or sparse? What kind of architecture do you see? Where is it located? In what time period is it situated? Who do you see occupying the slum in your mind? The word slum was first published in 1812 as a synonym for racket or criminal trade. But by the 1840s, the definition had evolved to connote informal housing characterized by overcrowding, poor sanitation, and tenure insecurity. The popular conception of the slum in the United States today is most likely an area in a city in the global south, perhaps in Lagos, Jakarta, or Mumbai. Did anyone imagine Bethnal Green in the east end of London, which constituted just one of the city's slum areas in the 19th century? I'm Basin. I'm Lydia. I'm Karuna. I'm Sasha, and we are undergraduate students at Columbia University studying the history of global housing justice. Today we are going to examine the imperial dynamics of housing the poor in the late 19th century in London, England, and Cairo, Egypt. Welcome to Cairo to London, Imperial Dynamics of Housing the Poor. By analyzing the British government's responses to emerging urban crises in each city, we will explore how social perceptions of the poor influenced British policy. How did these perceptions shift between the metropole London and the colony Cairo? How does a difference in perception result in differences in policy? What are the consequences of these differences? Whether in the 19th and early 20th century era when the sun never set on the British empire or in the post-Cold War world, it is often the nations on the top of the world order that determine the value system to judge the rest of the globe. They spearhead and control various ventures to address the humanitarian crises in the nations lower down in the world order. We must dissect the dissonant perceptions of the metropole or today's global north to understand how differing perceptions of the poor can lead to greatly different responses. Allow us to travel back in time to the 19th century, when slum wasn't a word we encountered in a UN report, but one that peppered the pages of a Dickens novel or pressed on the consciousness of Victorian city dwellers. Specifically, let's look at London through the eyes of one social reformer of the period, Charles Booth. Booth witnessed a city whose population was rapidly growing. This growth was due mostly to an agricultural depression that spurred rural migrants to move to the city in search of work. Between 1851 and 1881, the population of Greater London grew from just under 3 million to just under 5 million people. Let's try to understand how a reformer like Charles Booth viewed these slums and what that might say about the perception of the poor during this time. In an 1889 account of the East End of London, Booth recalled, quote, The houses, about 40 in number, contained cellars, parlors, and first, second, and third floors, mostly two rooms on a floor, and few of the 200 families who lived here occupied more than one room. In little rooms, no more than eight feet square would be found living father, mother, and several children. 
Most of the people described are Irish Roman Catholics getting a living as market porters or by selling flowers, fruits, fowls, or vegetables in the street. Drunkenness and dirt and language prevailed, and violence was common, reaching at times even to murder. Not a room would be free from vermin, and in many, life at night was unbearable. Several occupants have said that in hot weather, they don't go to bed, but sit in their clothes in the least infested part of the room. What good is it, they said, to go to bed when you can't get a wink of sleep for bugs or fleas? Charles Booth and his contemporary social reformers' investigations into poverty proved critical. With respect to the poor, unemployed, and unhoused, this period witnessed a shift in the Victorian psyche. Reformers like Charles Booth abandoned a pig makes the sty mentality, and instead believed that it was the responsibility of the state to provide the means for the poor to be able to help and house themselves. In general, the response of the state was aimed at eliminating or containing the visibility of poverty. For some Londoners, the slum was more than an eyesore. It was a threat to the health of the city at large. Thus, the British responded with clearance and containment which ultimately led to more overcrowding in order to make the shared urban space more apparently appropriate for the city's elite rather than the poor themselves. We spoke to Professor Deborah Valenz, expert on British social and cultural history, to learn more about this shift in perception and the motivations of reformers like Booth and the response of the state. You know, it's clear that Victorians had their eye on the poor. They were, all of them, um, you know, men and women, even children, were aware of the importance of a, a society that had um, binding ties, you know, across class difference. And um, as you probably know, Victorians were famous for venturing into the slums, you know, I, you know, the expression to, to go slumming, um, that, that was a Victorian pastime. You know, I'm, I, I may be in a minority by saying, I don't think it was as hypocritical as some people have painted it to be. Um, I think women who went into the slums, um, surely needed something to do. They were, they were not employed uh, Victorian women, but they were earnest in feeling some kind of um, sympathy, if not exactly empathy, and they wanted to genuinely improve things. Um, but it was clear that things were getting worse. And so what you're looking for is a turning point. There certainly is one. Um, when things went from bad to worse. And it's not simply that we see descriptions change in degree, but historians of housing have shown that, you know, by the 1770s, let's say, um, there were serious attempts at slum clearance. So whole neighborhoods were just destroyed, um, wiped out, and um, the building of increasingly numerous railway lines um, made this a convenient strategy for urban reform. And the consequence was tremendous overcrowding of poor people in the center, center of London. 
um, overcrowding was the key word, you know, it was everywhere in magazines, newspapers, um, journals. Um, so it, it was a reality. Um, and alongside that, we see slum visitors who change their perceptions as a result. You can, you can, you can even pinpoint the shift. But were emerging ideas about alleviating poverty the result of benevolence? Or did these new ideas seek to protect the urban spaces of the elite, now threatened by the visibility of urban poverty? One reformer in contemporary of Booth described the slum as, quote, a deep-seated ulcer that now affects the very vitals of the state and spreads its paralyzing effects through every part of our social system, end quote. Booth himself had, according to Valens, a hierarchy of categories for humans, the lowest rung of which was characterized as savages. This language to describe the urban poor in animalistic terms was also paralleled in colonial subjects abroad. Hoping to learn more about the perceptions of the London poor in the context of empire, we talked to British historian Susan Peterson of Columbia University. I think what is interesting is the way the um, kind of turn to racial explanations and racism as a way of perceiving the empire in the late 19th century. That's a, you, you see that kind of hardening in the late 19th century, the way that then inflects discussions of poverty in England. And that happens quite a lot. So the language say, you know, so books about the discovery of poverty will be called things like in darkest England, okay, where they're borrowing a language from, you know, the, a language of kind of imperial exploration and race to talk about um, England's problems of poverty and the London poor will be racialized even though they are, um, you know, almost entirely white Londoners. But it just, it's similar to the way the Irish are racialized as a kind of other. So you do get a lot of language, for instance, poor children running wild on the streets, say. The, the term for that is a street Arab, right? They're talk called street Arabs all the time. They're not Arabic, they're just London kids, who die, you know? But the language of, of empire is a way of kind of um, bringing it, it is something, pe people become more, there's a kind of heightened language that is taken from the empire and the racialization is taken from, um, I think, uh, you know, this kind of hardening of the thinking on the empire and then that plays again into um, how poverty is talked about in England itself. And um, we see that a lot in the language of, I mean, if you read someone like the Sherlock Holmes stories say, there's a lot of discussions of poverty or, you know, the kind of nooks and crannies and rookeries and 
you know, back streets of London that borrows a kind of language of empire. So, and similarly, um, you know, the, the kinds of ways people, the, the, that kind of carceral sense of um, um, putting people into colonies. Uh, for instance, you know, the Salvation Army thought of um, having camps, kind of work camps for people who were poor and quote unquote needed reform or were work shy or something like that. And they called those colonies. So that that's a kind of language, I think, of empire that becomes a way of, of um, you know, it's, it's, it's fungible. It moves between the empire and, and um, the metropole. Let's turn our focus eastward to see how the British response differed in Cairo, Egypt, where perceptions of the poor in London were replicated and pushed to greater extremes. If you were to take a stroll through Cairo during the late 19th century, you might feel like you're in two places at once. Egyptian Cairo and British Cairo were only separated by a street, but were entirely different worlds. On one side was East Cairo, the native city. It was pre-industrial in technology, social structure, and way of life. This city's labyrinthine streets, called the Hawari, were unpaved and unlit at night. Lacking in sufficient infrastructure, this city relied on water peddlers to supply water to residents. Right next door, however, the Western colonial city boasted steam-powered technologies, faster pace and wheel traffic, and a European identity. Travelers here would arrive by railroad and traverse the city by horse-drawn carriage. The streets were straight and paved and lit by gas lamps. This city boasted an advanced conduit system that delivered water, as well as formal French gardens. These dual cities highlight Europe's imperial influence in Egypt and the divisions it produced. We want to know how and why these divisions were produced. How did British perceptions of both native Egyptians and the poor among them lead to a divided city? The British occupied Egypt in 1882. Evelyn Baring, first Earl of Cromer, served as the British Consul General of Egypt during the first 27 years of the occupation. He believed that Egypt needed to be placed under the tutelage of the West. He did this by establishing local self-governing bodies while allowing Britain to maintain supreme control of affairs. British perceptions of not only the Egyptian poor, but also the Egyptian natives in all, heavily impacted how this supreme control of affairs shaped housing geography in the city. Remember how Charles Booth argued that the government needed to take care of London's poor because they couldn't take care of themselves? The British imperial government implemented a more extreme version of this approach to urban poverty in Cairo. Travel journals from the mid-1800s suggest that the British viewed Egyptians as dirty and immoral. The representation of housing existed at the center of this tainted perception. They expressed disgust at the rich harems and the poor hovels. They spun both into symbols of Egypt's excessive sexuality, irrationality, and moral degradation. Many of these accounts were often used by British officials, such as Cromer, to influence policy. British officials also attributed the moral degradation within the hovel and the Egyptian home as primary evidence of their inability to self-govern. Fathers were seen as lazy, irresponsible, and abusive. 
mothers were either unconcerned with raising their children or too preoccupied with the demands of the father. The children then never learned to become responsible, intelligent leaders. So a large part of the British goal to regenerate Egypt was aimed at changing what they understood to be Egyptian domestic behaviors. Remember that people writing about the East End of London in Charles Booth's time frequently returned to the same descriptions of domestic life in that part of the city. Family life was troubled, they wrote, and even violent. Verbal and physical antagonism between husband and wife would often spill out onto the street. Men were seen as abusive, struggling to assert their authority over women who were neither deferential nor ladylike. Were these deviant qualities viewed, then, as a symptom of poverty in London as compared to being inherent to the people of Egypt? Let's see how these differences in perception manifested themselves in Egypt. The British didn't just attempt to regenerate Egypt through domestic space. They also transformed the residential geography of the city at large. Like London, Cairo experienced significant population growth in the 19th century. A major factor in this growth was the immigration of rural dwellers to the urban centers in search of work. During the colonial period, the population of Cairo more than doubled. It grew from under 400,000 to over 1 million. Migrants to Cairo from outlying villages lived in the Hawari, the winding and narrow alleyways which constituted the organizational units of Cairo since the medieval period. The residents of the Hawari shared single rooms, found shelter in temporary structures on the roofs of buildings, and built tents on empty land. By the mid-colonial period, the Hawari were overflowing with workers, in large part due to British attempts to modernize and bring industry to this part of the city. What used to be residential neighborhoods of the city were now dominated by commercial and industrial activity. The Hawari were already congested spaces. They were knocked down a step on the social ladder as they overflowed and outgrew the financial resources to maintain their infrastructure and populations. At the same time, Cairo's rich merchants fled the Hawari in favor of European-built developments with paved and lit boulevards, and of course, the connection to European ideas of modernity. The result was thus a divided city in which labor, congested housing, and Egyptian natives were confined to the Hawari in the east, while the wealthy merchants and European colonizers lived in the west. But unlike the London slums which the British used to contain their urban poor, the Hawari were not just areas of abandonment and poverty, they were also centers of resistance to British colonial rule and sites that preserved Egyptian ways of life in the shadow of colonialism. So while the poor in London were confined to lodging houses or displaced by slum clearance, it wasn't just the poor in Egypt who were relegated to the east side of the city. Instead, the British in Cairo applied the same perceptions of the poor in London to nearly all of the Egyptian natives. They equated the Egyptian subjects with poverty, immorality, and filth, and responded accordingly by distancing themselves in the west portion of the city. London reformers focused on improving the housing conditions of the poor instead of blaming immorality and failed character. This effort was motivated by the demand of industrialism and the threat informal housing posed to the public health of the city. The result was containment of poverty and mass displacement. In Cairo, British officials applied a vision of poverty as a result of immorality failed character and irrationality to colonial subjects living in the Hawari. Despite the fact that the informal housing was largely caused by the overcrowding of workers concentrated around spaces of industrialization imposed by the British, they responded by segregating the city. 
Today, the East End area is one of the main centers of migration for Bangladeshi families. In a 2017 study, this borough was found to have the highest rates of unemployment, poverty, child poverty, and pay inequality in all of London. In Cairo today, the racial segregation between the East and the West portions of the city has largely ceased in the post-colonial era. However, the city is still segregated by class. The poor are consigned to informal housing in the city center. The West of the city is now home to enclaves of gated communities. In both cities, the visibility of poverty posed a problem for the British elite, but the lens through which poverty was understood differed greatly. What we hope to have shown is that representation matters. How the British perceived poor housing in the metropole and the colonies and colonial subjects at large greatly affected the formation of urban space in these cities. Moreover, these perceptions had the power to shape the livelihoods of the people who were displaced, contained, and cleared from public view in London and Cairo.